And I'm Kat, and welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, and Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two regular, normal, average girls who just have an obsession about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And here's your disclaimer, chatters. The following crime chat does contain adult content and descriptions of violent and very interesting scenarios of the deep blue sea today. So your listener discretion is advised. Yes, you have been warned. And before we get in today's crime chat, the entire Adams household is in front of me. I know Biscuit and Bella are behind you. They're somewhere out there. Checking, make sure they're not trying to get in this episode by getting in the pool. They may make some cameo appearances. But yeah, so my amazing husband is our guest this week. Yay! Yay! Welcome! Welcome! (laughs) He has been talking about this crime chat topic for quite some time. And a while back when we did the Chris Crimes, I misunderstood the assignment. And this should have been (laughs) the episode that we did. But we're making up for it. And he is making his appearance. We'll be relying on some of his navigational expertise into the deep blue sea and all of that jazz for today. Well, I just want to let everybody know, and Chris, I just want to let you know that I am the designated chicken shit for this episode. <laughs> I'm gutsy, but my little friends and I, and this is squishy, squishy, <laughs> not squishy, like squishy, squishy, okay? Squishy. We don't tango with Jaws. Like, we're not gonna, we just sit, <laughs> re, see that little tree, that little underwater tree, what do they call that, coral? Seaweed? Yeah. yeah. It looks more like seaweed. We hang there. We're good. That's like our little tiki bar. He's considered a professional diver up to depth. Yeah. So depth, I'm certified to 130. So probably next year, I'm going to be working steps to get to 200 foot. So I have a technical question. What's the difference between feet? And I'm not going to say metrics. (laughs) And four long. Far far long? What is that? Is that the depth? Fathoms. 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 Yeah. So Where the hell did I get furlong? Okay. Fathoms. Any yes. furlong? I was just say I got furloughed. I just started. <laughs> I know, I know. Furloughed on the first day. Okay. Fathoms. Yes. Yeah, what furloughed. <laughs> what is that? What is that? So is fathoms that- is dead. Okay. Fathoms is kind of like uh, in diving, which insight, y'all figure this out. You talk about atmospheres. You'll learn about atmospheres. So it's a water column. So every 33 foot, you get a new atmosphere in water of depth. So fathom, just for an example, zero to 100 is one fathom. Please don't Google it because I'm probably wrong, but just example. <laughs> okay. Well, since we both have been recovering and on the mend, four or five weeks ago, we had shoulder surgery and I just had knee surgery. So we've been watching a lot of movies and shows. Did you know there's another Murdoch special? No. It's on an investigation discovery. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah. Okay. It was pretty interesting. I know we talked about that for a while. And the cool thing now mm-hmm. is they took a completely different perspective than the HBO and the Netflix series. Really? So it, it's kind of the same core material, mm-hmm. but the way they went about it, I thought was pretty interesting. So that definitely a good one to catch. So, okay. I'm going to check that out. So would you say that that was better than the Netflix? I know Netflix gets a little biased sometimes. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was better. I just like they took a different approach. You didn't have where both the others, they used the kids from the boat wreck. You know, mm-hmm. parents, they weren't even in this. Mm-hmm. They used friends. Oh, wow. Family, they were the ones that, you know, like everybody's got that aunt and uncle or family member that's not real close to the family, but they always know everything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like that approach. Like, you know, we didn't get in the others, but we're the ones who really knew what were going on because we were the behind the scenes family. We know right. all the dirt and gossip. So it kind of went that route. And some of the stuff they bring up, 
is very interesting. Yeah. I think cat, we've mentioned that before. It's, it's like when you go and you investigate, they really need to speak to people like the beautician. Yeah. The manicurist. Yeah. They know all the, 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 all the deets where all the bodies are buried. They know where they are. When you yeah. think about it, it's the people that are in our everyday lives weekly, every two weeks. Mm-hmm. You feel comfortable enough to say stuff to but yeah. you feel confident enough that they're not going to hurt you with it because they're, I won't say insignificant, but the importance just really isn't there. So you're comfortable to open up. Right. It's true. So then we also finished Slasher, the Flesh and Blood, which okay. we talked about last week. I mentioned that there was the two series. There was Ripper mm-hmm. and then there was Flesh and Blood. And we both agree the Ripper one was probably a little bit better. I like that storyline better. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. But the Flesh and Blood one was more like cutthroat, like family cutthroat yeah. kind of thing. Oh, we got to love that. You gotta love that. And then we watched a couple superhero movies, like the comic movies. Have you ever seen Black Adam? Part of it. I started watching it. It was recommended that like Black Adam apparently is like, is he like the strongest superhero? Is it DC? Is it DC DC Comics? Yeah. Apparently like Black (laughs) Adam has like this crazy strength that his character just wasn't developed yet in DC, like the movies and stuff. But I could see that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was one thing I believe if I remember correctly, I mentioned was there was nothing on earth that could kill him yeah which yeah. is that one mineral that they were trying to like superman mine yeah uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know of the is it's it's the other one it's not dc it's marvel yeah marvel has a character that is not technically developed either but they did do a netflix series on her wanda yeah. Um, wanda. Yeah, wanda i love yeah. wanda and yeah, she, wandavision wandavision and technically she's another one who is totally powerful and can kill mm-hmm. them Absolutely. all mm-hmm. yeah she's got that crazy side she made a good cameo appearance in in the last doctor strange movie mm. and kind of her capabilities and everything like unbeat but she's a it's a witch it's her a character witch. is a witch yeah right right the right. red witch i think yes so sure what her name the, is, scarlet. the scarlet the scarlet witch scarlet yeah. witch and she's traumatized or tormented with her mm. children or something like that right After well vision it. so vision is was made from one of the stones from Thanos's fist, like one of the stones was in his forehead. Yeah, he was, uh, stones. Yeah, yeah, he was AI. So he was artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence which I did uh. not just have. <laughs> he was artificial intelligence. So he wasn't actually a real person, but Wanda like fell in love with Vision. And uh. then when Thanos took the Infinity Stone out of his head, he died. Right. And so part of the Wanda vision is her creating this scene in this scenario of where she has a family with Vision. That's so sad. And people are under a spell like in this made yeah. up town i don't remember the name of the town i don't remember the table. i don't remember that either yeah but she had the she had enough power to control every th- aspect of the town people's mm-hmm. memory Mem- uh, their behaviors like it was... a dome that protect you know yeah we're trying to get into the town but they yeah. can't so that one's actually a really good one to watch it's yeah. super interesting okay so remember last week i said to you that i'm kind of sick of hollywood constantly regurgitating the same mm-hmm. idea over and over again yeah. yeah so guess what they're coming out with cat you said the extra this last week. Yeah, they're coming out with something else. Oh, they're why? coming out with another Indiana Jones. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> like I thought the series ended already. Like it was done. Like that was the whole point of the one a couple years ago. I'm assuming not Harrison Ford, but is he gonna make like a cameo like Sean Connery did? No, it's Harrison Ford. He's the lead. He's like 90. Yeah, and he's gonna be yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I have expensive taste. You don't know his life. <laughs> Although, <laughs> would you say last week Al Pacino's having a baby and he's 80, 83. 83? Yeah. With his 29-year-old wife. Oh, oh. <laughs> this is, no. he said it all. It, there know. it is. <laughs> 
29. Do what? Yep. She's 29. He's 83 and they're having a baby. And this is fourth wife or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Al, you, never know. you never know. You never know. Al, I'm oh. impressed, sir. So there's the other thing that I noticed that is coming out for next year. And it's the Winnie the Pooh new movie. And it's called Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey. <gasps> you is know what? The, the horror? Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> That's going to be probably ep- i mean it should be epic kind of like a oh. violent was a violent night yeah yeah, yeah. violent night you went yes. and saw violent night yes i yeah. love i love the actor but yeah this apparently um i just did the google on it and it says it transformed the feral and bloodthirsty winnie the pooh and piglet they go around terrorizing christopher robin and the group of young women in a remote house <laughs> how could this go wrong how can that go wrong? winnie the pooh winnie the pooh <laughs> Today, I know you guys are going to go over a story about some extreme sport. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you asked, Kat asked me to do an intro on extreme sports. Is that fitting for what you're going to go over? Because I did not read your story. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Yeah, that just gives us a good idea and then maybe kind of set us up for the passion of the extreme sport that we're going to talk about. Okay, cool. So extreme sports are activities that involve high level of danger, adrenaline, and physical exertion. These sports often push the limits of what's considered normal or safe in traditional sporting activities. People participate in extreme sports for various reasons, including the thrill, the challenge, challenge, sense of accomplishment they provide. And here are some popular extreme sports. Okay. I had to cut up this list. This list went on forever. So I just picked out like my favorite. (laughs) So first one is skydiving. Have you guys ever skydived? No, never. No. Okay. I'm down to try it though. Yeah. Yeah? All right. This is when you jump out of an aircraft, a perfectly good functioning aircraft. No, thank you. We're going to move on to number two. Okay. Base jumping. Have you guys ever done that? No. I have not. No? Okay. Base jumping is jumping from fixed objects and like buildings and cliffs and bridges. Uh, You see this on like TikTok and YouTube Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. Number three is rock climbing. This is scaling cliffs and mountains or other rock formations using Mm -hmm. specialized equipment, ropes, and harnesses. Number four, mountaineering, including climbing Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed when I researched this one, it said that that technically Mount Everest is known not necessarily as a sport, but is known as a, an adventure or an event. Like they don't oh. categorize it as a sport. Like it's its own thing. I don't know. Like I was, I was looking for extreme sports and Mount Everest was never coming up. And I'm like, why, where's Mount Everest? Mm-hmm. And they said, it's not categorized as a sport. Maybe because the amount of death that happens on Mount Everest. To maybe yeah. detract people from wanting to do it. Yeah. Oh. They called it an expedition. They were like, this is an expedition, not a sport. Yeah, because it's, yeah. So I could see that because they have uh, base camps. So they have different base camps to work your way up before you make your final climb or push to the summit. Right. Mount Everest has become probably the most publicized and commercialized mountain that there is. So fun fact, Cass brother and myself are big into climbing movies and shows. Right. So I know between the both 
Pebbles, who's probably watched over 20. And 14 Peaks, great documentary about Nims Persia, former English Special Forces commando. He climbed 14 of the tallest peaks, well, the tallest 14 peaks in the world in one year. It's never been done before, and he only used oxygen above 8,000 feet. Wow. But there's actually a section where he talks about Everest and the, why it's the attraction is there, but it's actually right. taken away because it's so publicized now. Yeah, and I, I'm sure they have people just being stupid. Yeah, he actually, um, he tweeted a picture from the summit, and mm. uh, I think there was over 400 people mm-hmm. trying to summit at one time, and it, it went global. Mm-hmm. It, it was the biggest national news of the week. Really? I mean, 400 people, you think of 400 people in a line on one of the most deadliest mountains in the world. Yeah. Not at all at one time, where there's no help to come get you. Right, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So now it's just an adventure to get back home now. So. <laughs> It's kind of taken away that that sport aspect from it. Yeah, that that because I think there's less joy. I mean, there's joy at the end, but there are I know there is a body that's located on the route to the summit mm-hmm. where I think they're called green boots or yep. something. It's a body yep. that's just there. They can't get to it. And he had these big green boots that he was wearing, and that's all you could see. Yeah. The green boots. Ugh, it's just heartbreaking. And also, if it's a sport, you have to be able to kind of judge it and gauge it and you know, like strategically set it up where people start at a certain part and then finish at a certain you can't really do that with the mountain how do you do that well you train still certain certain atmospheric levels and but then they have to start everybody at this spot and then how do you is reaching the summit if like i don't know like i don't know if there would be enough people risking their life just to kind of like organize it in that way because just Mm -hmm. reaching the summit is an accomplishment you know yeah i don't know next one i you know what i've done this so i know it's not a totally extreme sport but i like i used to snowboard it's snowboarding is you know you're operating a single board and i used to be a really good skier so i used to do black diamonds all the time and snowboarding was I do have a little bit of guts a little bit And the next one is surfing. Have you guys ever surfed? No, but boogie board. Daughter-in-law said she would teach us. Oh, okay. But you can't. You can't do <laughs> no, that in Arizona. Well, no, she's in California. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's why I'm not going to do it. The water's too cold. Yeah, <laughs> it is it. cold out there. The water is cold. <laughs> so this obviously is riding the waves on a surfboard, requiring skill, and balance mm-hmm. to navigate the water. But these are just a few examples of many, many extreme sports. One of the scariest for me is deep sea diving diving because I just have anxiety about the water, me and Skishy. Okay. (laughs) It is also known as offshore diving. It involves exploring underwater environments at significant depths. Unlike recreational scuba diving, which is limited to a shallower depth due to the physiological considerations like decompression, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the human body can only tolerate a certain amount of pressure and descending to extreme depths requires different set of equipment and procedures beyond the scope of traditional scuba diving, right? Right. Does that sound correct? So I scuba dived too. And I, I think I went to 30 feet and I freaked the hell out like I like they had to send me back up very slowly on like a tether because I just couldn't do it like to me underwater I don't know how you do it underwater to me is like you might as well shoot me up into the freaking space and send me (laughs) to the moon because it's the same thing it's just under it's it's like almost like earthly like outer space we don't any we don't know anything about the ocean sure we do five percent we know five percent of the ocean there's fishies there's there's skishies skishies (laughs) (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. 
<laughs> deep sea diving is beyond recreational if it's compared to scuba. Divers rely on saturation of diving and other advanced diving techniques. Mm-hmm. Saturation diving involves living in a pressurized environment, usually a diving belt or a habitat for extended periods, allowing divers to work at great depths and avoid decompression during ascent. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, That's so Google. <laughs> So sat divers, typically, they'll go into a chamber on a ship. Uh, uh-huh. You see this a lot for... A decompression chamber? No, because they're not decompressing. Oh. They are compressing. Oh. They are they are nitrogen loading their body oh. to go to depth. Oh, so they start on the ship gotcha. and live in a chamber for however long it takes for their body to get acclimated. Highly dangerous. There's actually been several tragedies to where... Because we'll talk about later, uh, narcosis, nitrogen narcosis, mm-hmm. getting knocked out, as some of us call it. They got knocked and open the door well you have the outside air mm-hmm. and then you have the air inside the chamber and right. they do it creates a vacuum what ha- wha- what happens well do you think all that i'm hanging out to skishy skishy look at look at the um, face Sadly, like, it turns the body inside out because the pressure changes so much that it collapses like a, everything. It's an it's an explosion, like a spontaneous inside combustion. the body. Well, no, you think like a nuclear explosion. Everything gets sucked in and then oh, goes out, right? Because uh-huh. the pressure is so different. Because you're they're setting you up to be underwater at six, seven hundred foot for four or five days. Mm. You know, so you, you kind of like implode. Yeah, yeah. So highly a dangerous field to be in. But they'll live in those chambers and then put down in a bell and they stay in the bell till they work whatever time they have to work and oh so two three days whatever it is and then come back up and then they spend another two three days decompressing oh my god all right you just freak you just gave me stuff that i'm gonna have a nightmare about tonight okay so decompression refers to the process of safely ascending from a dive or exposure mm-hmm. to increased pressure to allow the body to eliminate the excess dissolved gases, mm-hmm. primarily, like Chris said, nitrogen, right? Mm-hmm. Is this the stuff that makes you implode? Um, no, that'd be more the uh, the pressure difference. Okay. Because uh, like we were talking about atmospheres earlier, which yeah. we into into the story. Mm-hmm. They're setting you up, I think 600 foot, every 33 foot's a new atmosphere. So they're that inside that chamber, your atmosphere is... 600 and 700 foot down and you're at one atmosphere here so now you think that door or that chamber suddenly opens and both those atmospheres try to you know oh each god. other so you have a massive drop oh my god that's one time really freaking scary okay mm-hmm. proper decompression is critical to prevent decompression sickness commonly mm-hmm. known as the bends mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i actually know somebody that had this happen and they were in a coma for two weeks Oh, wow. From oh, wow. Yeah. So she she came up too fast. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. And apparently when she hit the surface, she was already unconscious. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. Basically, it requires an extensive training and specialized equipment. Here are some key aspects of deep sea diving. One, the depth. Deep sea diving typically refers to the diving beyond a recreational limit, usually reaching depths of several hundred feet or more. Mm-hmm. Number two, the equipment. Deep sea divers use a range of specialized equipment, including dry suits, full face masks, harnesses, which um, is umbilical like umbilical umbilicals. which is a tether to the surface for communication and air supply and mixed gas or saturation Mm -hmm. diving systems. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just kind of like trying to read through this. (laughs) 
Number three, hazards and risks. Deep sea diving presents unique risks due to increased pressure, cold temperature, reduced visibility, and the potential of encountering human life. <laughs> Squishy. <laughs> and also for training and certification, like you guys go through these trainings that are insane. Like I just remember uh, going to Jamaica and wanting to scuba and having to do like a 20 hour swim in the pool. Like I can only imagine what you guys go through, but we're going to talk about that. Deep sea diving is challenging and highly specialized field and it requires extensive training experience and a thorough understanding of the risks involved, but Mm -hmm. it offers the opportunities for scientific exploration, resource extraction, and uncovering the mysteries of the deep sea. It just takes a little guts. A little, oh, it takes a whole lot of guts. A little gut, no. A lot of guts and a little squishy. Yeah, a little squishy. (laughs) All right. So I hope that is a good lead into your story. Yeah, it takes us. I'm glad you mentioned the deep sea diving because we're going to talk about another kind of diving that's just as extreme, just as part of the deep blue sea and covers free diving. So with any extreme sport, like you mentioned, there's risks associated with it. And many steps can be taken to help minimize those risks and ensure the safety along the way. But unfortunately, in our story today, this is not the case. There's many critical checklists and safety measures that should have been in place for this incident, and it had a huge impact on this one-time freediving record holder and her life. In 2002, this French-born 28-year-old Audrey Mestre would meet her fate, attempting to break a new record of freediving to 171 meters. Was it actually foul play or just an accident? Oh, okay. The chatters, we are going to tell you the story, Mm -hmm. and you're going to side. Okay. All right. So Audrey Mestre, she was born in St. Denis, France, and I'm going to butcher probably some of the terminology, which is about 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles north of Paris. You're welcome. The conversions are necessary. Absolutely. Her family were snorkeling and scuba diving enthusiasts, and it would not take long for Audrey to join in on their passion. She started swimming lessons as a baby, and according to her biography, by the age of two and a half, she participated and won her first 25-meter gold medal in swimming. Two and a half? At yeah. two and a half. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Two and a, like, how'd she even know where to go? I mean, babies are naturally going to hold their breath. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a baby, though, she was able to do it. And then it was just something that she did all the time. It's possible. But her grandfather, actually, who was her biggest influence in her life for the water and the love of water, told her that she actually didn't need fins because her feet were so big, she actually should be disqualified from races. (laughs) Thanks, Grandpa. Greatest compliment ever. (laughs) She did begin scuba diving at the age of 13, um, but due to France's laws at the time, she wasn't able to be certified until she was 16 in order to get certified in scuba diving. So in 1990, while in high school, her family moved from France to Mexico City. She did become fluent in Spanish, and Audrey graduated in 1993 from high school and then would eventually study marine biology at La Paz University, which is near the Sea of Cortez in Baja, California, Mexico, so in the Baja Peninsula. While at school, she found comfort in the sea and in diving. And from her biography, she wrote, quote, to forget the absence of my parents and my isolation due to a different language that I barely spoke or understood, I would go diving. Every time I dived, I would find new attractions and new satisfactions. Back on land, I would submerge myself in books and magazines that specialized in diving and in marine biology. 
I found some other research also that Audrey had contracted typhoid when she was a teenager and she got scoliosis from the typhoid. So she was very like uncomfortable and everything. And she had to actually wear this like body brace, except Mm. for when she was in the water. So it was in the ocean, which is kind of where she found a bit of sense of freedom. When she was obtaining her PhD, she discovered free diving, which is what we're going to talk about today. The current world record holder at the time was Francisco Pepin Ferreras. She started to research Pepin, his articles, um, experiments that were done, books, videos, anything that she could to learn more about him, and not just about free diving, but about Pepin himself. He became the topic of her thesis, and she added in her biography, quote, he became my only conversation topic, my only preoccupation, and my new obsession, end quote. Hmm. After finishing her thesis, she actually had the opportunity to meet Pepin in person. Pepin, who was a Cuban defector, he organized organized was organizing a free diving world record attempt in Cabo San Lucas in Baja California Mexico in that same kind of area where she was living which it was about 155 miles south of La Paz where she was at unable to pass up on the opportunity to meet him knowing he was going to be so close she took a four-hour bus ride which coincidentally was also carrying chickens eggs egg cartons and dogs to Cabo to meet Pepin (laughs) I bet she has a great ride (laughs) well I mean you do what you do right Mm. Pepin and his team offered training at this event that she was going to and she had an opportunity to dive with him so she paid the required fee obviously he's got to do he got to make some money right Uh and she partook in it she wrote in her biography quote after this first meeting that left me amazed i had a chance to talk to him this was actually a very awkward moment since i had the feeling of knowing him very well i didn't know what to say or ask because i knew everything about him due to my research end quote yeah she was uh, awkward antlers was, yeah awkward yeah. antlers <laughs> yeah Hi, buddy. I already know your parents' names. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know everything about you. It's like your biggest fan. Like, Oh, yeah. Approaching me meeting. Out. By this time, she had been living in Mexico for seven years. She became fluent in Spanish and even had a Mexican accent. So she did talk to Pepin. And for a while, you know, the conversation kind of came up. They ended up talking about France. Pepin said that he had a negative experience in France and had some hatred towards the French people. Mind you, she was French, right? Yeah. When he asked her, because her accent was so convincing, what part of Mexico she was from, she did admit that she was from France and not Mexico. Uh. So understandably, they didn't talk for the rest of the day. Poor fella. <laughs> and fall, she paid to be there with him. She paid to be there with him. She paid to dive with him. Yes. For knowing everything about him, she, she didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah. She didn't know he didn't like French people. <laughs> she didn't lie, though. She didn't lie. She could have been like, oh, uh, I'm from Baja. Honesty is key. Yes. <laughs> so on the following day, in an attempt to apologize for his remarks, Pepin actually invited Audrey to go diving with him, but at no cost this time. Like, I'll give you, you can dive with me for free today. So after actually observing her skills as a scuba diver, Pepin asked Audrey to join his safety team, which, of course, she she was happy to accept. Following this event, Pepin also took time to teach her underwater photography. And he told Audrey underwater photography itself is a good way to kind of capture the sea and share what she was feeling with the pictures that she captured with the world. All this time that they spent together, Audrey and Pepin fell in love. Uh, they yeah. developed a rom- romantic relationship. He was about, uh-huh. what, 12, 13 years older? Yeah, maybe even a little bit more than that. Maybe. Definitely age gap. Yeah, there was an age gap. But we, as we talked about, age is nothing but a number. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in meters. In meters. <laughs> 
Sounds so, better in meters. You're going to love this next part. Guess where they moved to? Don't say it. Miami, Florida. Of course. It all ends up in Florida. Everything. <laughs> give us ever. God, give us your shit, America. This is like, you know, God's waiting room. Like, yeah. In 1997, Pepin began to train Audrey in freediving. And we're going to get into like into depth kind of what freediving is. Mm. He always wanted to gain experience about freediving after, of course, studying all of the things that he did in freediving, the records that he set, being able to go down deep without air on a single breath. And Pepin, who is actually training another female at the same time to break the world records in freediving, he saw Audrey's talent and encouraged her to break the records herself. And she Mm -hmm. did just that. She broke the woman's record for freediving by going to a depth of 125 meters, 410 feet. Thank you. (laughs) On a single breath of air. By I can barely make it to the deep end of a swimming pool. (laughs) I I need to breathe on the way to the front door. Like, how do you do that? Well, we'll talk about the mechanics (laughs) of it in a minute. But the next year, she broke her own record by going to 130 meters, 427 feet on a single breath. Now you're just showing off. I am. I know. (laughs) (laughs) He said, quote, I thought that if I could enter his underwater world, Pepin's, I could be closer to him. And I did, end quote. But she would actually eventually outshow Pepin and she broke records that he no longer could. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh. On August 18th, 1999, the couple married over a dock near the sea, of course. In the last paragraph of the biography that I was mentioning, she wrote the following, quote, many people ask how after just four years of practicing freediving, I have already reached 130 meters when previous generations dedicated their lives to reach the 100 meters mark. The truth is that I don't think I have anything special, only the luck of living with an extraordinary person whom I trust that transmitted me his 15 years of knowledge and experience as a professional with no limits, end quote. Now put a nugget in that. Mm, Put a nugget in that statement. We're going to come back to it. But before we actually get into any more of the story, kind of in how she died, Mm. we're going to go over some of that technical stuff and that the terminology. Okay. Now, this is where your expertise is going to come into play. Mm. You're asking a whole lot today. (laughs) (laughs) So freediving. It is a form of underwater diving that relies on breath holding until resurfacing rather than the use of a breathing apparatus like scuba gear or a tank. Besides the limits of breath hold, immersion in water and exposure to high ambient pressure also have a psychological effects that limit the depth and duration that's possible in freediving. Example of freediving activities are traditional fishing techniques like jumping off a boat, going down deep spear fishing kind of thing, freediving photography, synchronized swimming is actually a form of freediving, underwater football, underwater rugby, underwater hockey, underwater target shooting. We didn't know. I haven't figured that one out yet. I don't know. How's that work? (laughs) But there's also a range of what's called quote unquote competitive apnea disciplines. And when you say, I said apnea, you're thinking probably sleep apnea. Right. Yeah. yeah so apnea is not breathing. So that, competitive, that's what it means. basically, a, an unable to breathe, not breathing, holding your breath. Mm. No CPAP involved. No CPAP. <laughs> <laughs> In these apnea disciplines, competitors attempt to attain great depths at times or distances on a single breath. Audrey was part of competitive apnea or what's called the competitive freediving world. Mm-hmm. This is regulated by 
to known world associations, the International Association for the Development of Apnea. It's AIDA, A-I-D-A. It means uh-huh. Association Internationally Poorly Developmenti LL Apnea. Okay. That was the Latin transition. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is the World Underwater Federation called CMAS, which means Confederacion Mundialion de Actividades. It's a b- 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 yeah, So we'll, we'll refer to ADA and CMAS. <laughs> Almost all types of competitive freediving are individual sports based on the best individual achievement. Unaided, single breath, on your yeah. own, that kind of thing. Super not for me. Yeah, no. <laughs> I would like help. <laughs> there are currently 11 recognized disciplines of that competitive freediving or competitive apnea. One of those disciplines Audrey was in, and this is called No Limits Apnea, which is regulated by ADA, the first one I mentioned, the first association. (laughs) In one of Pippin's own attempts at record-breaking, he ended up, so you go down really fast, we'll kind of get into it, and then when you get up, he ended up passing out at the surface. And although he actually reached the the depth to break a record, he was disqualified by ADA rules because he passed out at the surface. You have to be awake. Right. So in turn, Pippin was pissed off and he created his own association. It's IAFD. I don't remember what that's the uh, International Association of Free Divers. There you go. He created his own association. Just be like, oh, I don't like your rules. I'm going to make up my own rules. Uh-huh. That also speaks to his power, you know, I, I in the just, field. Yeah. That yeah. He was respected enough that it actually worked. It did. You work. know, he he was the uh-huh. man, if you will, mm-hmm. in the sport. Mm-hmm. So he was. He was the man. When he set up his IFD, I think that's where they set a limit where you have to, you can black out, but only after a certain time. Yeah. I hate it as a no blackout. Right. Are any of these associations valid or made up or not? Free diving is any means of holding your breath, going to a depth, and returning to the surface. It is permitted that a guideline is used to measure the distance, and most divers actually use a weighted sled to descend and then an mm-hmm. inflatable bag to ascend. So basically, you don't have to swim as deep as you can go and then swim back up. Right. Free divers attach themselves to a weighted slate. It goes down really fast. They hang on till they get to whatever depth they're going for and then they open up a bottle that inflates a balloon or lift bag and it takes them back up to the surface it's a fast down fast up which is why they can actually go to certain depths they just have to be able to hold their breath okay if they can't they could just let go and just stop it like if they freak out or something they don't have to continue hanging on to that weighted sled to go down down. yeah yeah but there's a break to yeah to stop it some of them have breaks they they can break it on the line and come to a stop but they are attached to that line until they release themselves from it are you kidding yeah the weight you are attached until you release it so you're along for the ride oh (laughs) hell no hell no you can stop it you're making me sweat i'm sorry whole conversation (laughs) but in order to ascend like once you reach your depth there's three steps that you have to do so grab the sled Mm -hmm. turn on the gas turn on the air and then which is going to inflate the lift bag and then pull the pin the pin is going to detach your body from the mechanism that's holding it down that kind of the sled that weighed it down and then you're going to lift up okay it's going to send you to the surface 
So typically with this, there are safety divers at certain depths, like we'll kind of watch you as you go down and watch you as you go up. There's some safety divers also on the surface. And these Mm. divers are certified to scuba dive at certain depths. Like you were talking about certifications and stuff before. So being able to get certified and they're tech divers, if that's right. Yeah, they're more technical divers um, because so scuba diving, you uh, dive within limits. So they call them NDL limits or no decompression limits, mm-hmm. meaning that you don't have to make decompression stops. You make safety stops to help off gas like the nitrogen that we've been talking about. But once you start getting into tech diving, the diving that they're doing, their one dive could be three and a half hours mm-hmm. because they had to decompress to make- because they oh, it exceeded exactly. the amount of time that they could be there to take in nitrogen. Right. Okay. So there are all these formulas and high tech math, yeah. fun stuff you can do that tells you how long you have to <laughs> stop at certain depths and all that. So for the three minutes that a free diver would go down and come back up, the safety divers spend three and a half hours in wow. the water. But they're there to make sure to monitor the free diver, monitor the descent, the ascent, make sure everything goes the way it's supposed to go. And if it doesn't, render aid as best as possible. However, with these depths, there's also other dangers. We talked about decompression sickness, nitrogen narcosis, and that's due to the atmospheric pressures. Mm-hmm. So just to go into that a little bit more, atmospheric pressures or ambient pressure and you mentioned it already, ambient pressure or atmospheric pressure increases the lower you go. So for every 10 meters to 33 feet, it's twice the size of the normal pressure than it's at the surface. So 10 meters down or 33 feet down, you're already feeling twice the amount of atmospheric pressure. Right. At 40 meters, which would be about 130 feet, it's five times the pressure than at sea level than that would be at the surface. So similarly, like, like, so when you're down, the pressure then decreases. So if you Uh think of, of a balloon, Right? Yeah, skishy. So skishy goes up. She's going to (laughs) inflate. She's going to expand because if your your lungs are going to kind of go get pressurized as you go down, well, then they're going to expand as you come up. So if you add anything to those lungs, pop, not good. Well, free diving is a little bit different than free scuba. diving. Is, yeah. So on a free diving, how they get away with a lot of stuff is that they don't take a breath. It's one breath hold. Oh. So everything in their body compresses together and yeah. expands together yeah. at one time. Whereas yeah. if you're diving and do this, you're breathing. So right. the air molecules on a molecular level, which is what's happening in your body, everything compresses at depth. And so they get tiny. So when you're right. diving, you're think of it like eating a cookie. You get down there, the cookies are really small now, mm-hmm. but you're taking big bites of it because there's less cookies right once you come up now that air starts expanding again but you actually took the oxygen out of it right it's just compressed air with less oxygen but now as it expands if you're not exhaling that air and letting everything letting it out back to that size your lungs were holding this much now you held your breath and it needs to hold Uh, this much yeah it can't Mm. can't do it (laughs) because that air wants to expand as it comes up you know Mm. that cookie wants to grow again the cookie the cookie so i actually had an instructor that's how i explained it you're like you know you got this big cookie on the surface you go down that cookie gets smaller but you still keep taking the same bite well guess what that cookie's gonna go away but as you come back up you know there's less cookie but you still need the same bite right it just made sense with the cookie for me (laughs) maybe it was the graphics because i love cookies but it worked out well 
So as like the pressure decreases also when you rise above sea level, like as you go up, which is also mm -hmm. why it's critical for aircraft and cabin pressure because the air is so much thinner, right? right? So decompression sickness we talked about, also called the bends you mentioned, is most well-known complication of scuba diving. It occurs as divers ascend and often from ascending too fast without doing decompression stops or safety stops. Mm -hmm. All divers get like micro bubbles. Anytime you go mm -hmm. in the water, everybody gets these micro bubbles in their blood to some extent, but most of the time the bubble are so few and so small that they don't really cause any harm. When decompression sickness occurs, these bubbles disrupt the tissues and the joints, the brain, the spinal cord, the lungs, other organs. Mm -hmm. So like the bends, like I, I just remembered like hearing about it, like it would really affect your joints. It's like all these like bubbles and stuff mm -hmm. that are in your joints. Yeah. And this is also why it's important for you divers out there to allow enough time between diving and then flying in an aircraft because you're diving to a certain, you know, down into the water, you're right. getting those nitrogen micro bubbles in your body. And then you have to wait a certain time frame to be able to go and fly where you're going to that lighter atmospheric pressure. You that. have to wait for them to naturally exit your body. So just as an example, the only time I think we've ever flown so close to a dive was last year when we went to Honduras. Mm -hmm. So we dove the last day that we were there and we had a flight the next day. Right. And on most dive computers that, that a lot of the divers are aware of say, no fly, you'll get a warning and it'll get a countdown. Like you have to wait a certain time. So mm -hmm. we didn't, we weren't able to do, typically in Honduras, we did what? three dives a day? Yeah, we did three a day. We only did the morning dives. So we, did, we weren't able to do the afternoon dive mm. because that would have, like we had to wait 24 hours before we, we flew because right. we knew we were flying mm. the next day. Yeah. Definitely didn't want to get decompression sickness in an aircraft. Right. And also be intoxicated. It's a bad trio, right? It is. It's a horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of the other illnesses we mentioned was the nitrogen narcosis or NARCT, Chris was talking about earlier. It's also called the rapture of the deep who called it that i ain't never heard that <laughs> i ain't never heard that before <laughs> it's another common illness which is also created by atmospheric pressure nitrogen comprises of 75 percent of the air but at surface pressures it has no sedating effect so i don't know if you knew that like the air that you breathe is not oxygen right. it's 79 percent nitrogen and 21 percent oxygen uh, at the, the air that that you breathe that yeah. you're breathing right now right but it has no sedating effect okay now at greater depths however nitrogen affects the brain the same way as nitrous oxide, which is like laughing gas, right? You're at the dentist and they give you the laughing gas and you get real goofy or on other anesthetic gases. And this is effect is also similar to like alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. You get a little loopy. And to some extent, there are some cross tolerances, but unlike alcohol, the onset and disappearance of being narc nitrogen narcosis mm -hmm. can be instantaneous. So all you have to do is that if you're at a certain depth, you start to get narked, you just go up and it goes away okay. i wish alcohol intoxication was like that i know <laughs> and so it actually happens really fast mm -hmm. i had a i didn't have a big case of it but i did have a small case um i was actually training for deep dives we we're like 100 foot and one of the skills is you have to navigate out and back off a line at 100 foot mm. well i wear my equipment in the same spot every time you just you have a routine and you keep it because if something happens in an emergency, you know exactly where it's at. Mm -hmm. So it was my turn to navigate out and back and I'm reaching for my compass and I couldn't remember where it was. It was just, I was looking all over and the instructor's like pointing at it like it's right there. Wow. That's like, scary. Like but, not able to. Right. But typically I know even right now, right, right there, that's where it sits every time. I, right. I know it. I couldn't find it. But as soon as I got my hand on it, I was completely fine. Wow. I swam out for, I think we did five minutes out and five minutes back. 
that with a buddy, of course, but it at 100 foot, I was completely fine. So talking about decompression limits, I think at 100 foot, you have nine minutes before mm. you hit deco limit. I, guess wow. now. I, I don't know. It's, like, it's all, it's it's somewhere all mathematical. Yeah. yeah. So, but we say all this to make a point about yeah. safety. Yeah. And the safety divers role, especially in free diving, the mechanics of free diving and how critical it is to ensure the safest outcome. Mm -hmm. So we'll go ahead and jump back into the story. We kind of got the the technical stuff out of the way. Where we left off, Audrey and Pepin got married. Mm -hmm. She held the record for both men and women in free diving at a depth of 130 meters, 427 feet. And then in 2002, another female free diver named Tanya Streeter successfully broke Audrey's record. Tanya dove to 160 meters or 525 feet in a free dive, single breath of air. Discouraged by this news, almost immediately, Pepin had Audrey training to get to a deeper depth to break her record. And she only really had to get to 161 meters technically by regulation Mm -hmm. to break the record. Within six weeks, Pepin, Audrey, and their whole team headed to the Dominican Republic to train. However, the team was missing two critical members at the time, Nick Buckley and Guido Brass. Prior to Tanya breaking the record, Audrey had told Nick they didn't have any big events that year. I don't need you, both Nick and Guido. And Nick said that he asked her three times, are you sure you don't need us? Are you sure there's anything you need us to do? So they both made other plans. They didn't go to Dominican Republic. Also not on the team was a man named Cedric DeRolis, who died the previous year in a cave diving accident. And he was their 130 meter safety diver, support diver. So this caused a gap in their water column as far as the levels of having certain safety divers at certain depths. Mm. So there's a video documentary that covers this event. It's called No Limits. It was made by ESPN. It's a fantastic documentary. In there, there's a gentleman named Carlos Serra, Mm -hmm. who is Pepin's former business partner. And he said in this documentary, quote, from the moment Tanya Streeter broke the record, he went ballistic, meaning Pepin. He had possession over Audrey and Audrey's records. Mm -hmm. So he felt what Tanya Streeter did more than just against Audrey, but against himself. So Pepin kept pushing her to go deeper and deeper every single time, end quote. And they actually trained enough for her to not only break the 160 meter, but to go to 170 meters, about 560 feet. So Tanya Streeter, who was also in this documentary, the one who actually to this day still currently holds the record, Uh said, quote, if I'm honest, I think the reason that Pepin pushed Audrey was because Pepin couldn't do it himself. I know that's really inflammatory and I hope he doesn't know where I live, but I truly believe that, end Uh quote. I don't think it's inflammatory. I think it's facts. I think his ego got the best of him right. and he was using his wife as a tool mm-hmm. to get some level of notoriety for something he can't do anymore. Right. So yeah. you put your wife at risk to that level. Mm-hmm. Shame on you, Papine. You sound yeah. like an egomaniac. No, thank you. It's crazy. Yeah. But wait, there's more. <laughs> oh, God. That she would even add that I hope he doesn't know where I live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me, that kind of speaks to his reputation. Right. Like, like why would you say that? Like, if he's always been a nice guy, you know, he's very competitive and pushed her hard, but no, you bring out, I hope he doesn't know where I live. I don't know. It just kind of strikes me as why would you say that if he was just a nice, caring guy, you know? Well, you know, I think when it comes to these people, like these, these egomaniacs, a lot of people are afraid of them. So Mm -hmm. they will say they're nice. They're great. They don't want to spoil anything, but he literally married his biggest fan. Right. So that man went to bed and woke up with somebody just complimenting him in a door. Yeah. No. 
So another gentleman, Bill Stromberg, who is a free diver safety diver for the team said, quote, Pepin wanted Audrey to kick ass like really, really hard, trying to beat the men's record just as Tanya did. Because at the time when Tanya broke the record, it was both men and women, like the world record. Right. And he said there were a lot of loud and angry discussions and a lot of friction between Pepin and Audrey, end quote. Kat, if you told me right now that he left Audrey and married Tanya, I would be like, yep, that sounds right. <laughs> okay. I don't just... think she, I don't think Tanya would though. No, no. <laughs> no she wasn't a fan, but no, 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 no. She, she was winning. <laughs> so Carlos, who was the business partner, also added that he noticed days leading up to the dive. Now they're in the Dominican Republic, days leading up into the dive doing the training, Audrey became depressed and did notice a bruise under her eye. And while he didn't necessarily ask her directly about it and didn't know where it came from, he did notice that she just wasn't acting normal. He said, quote, Audrey was just very withdrawn. Obviously, something was just not right. It was really unclear why she felt this way and why she was acting this way. Was she saying to Pepin, I don't want to do this. And then he was forcing it and abusing her into doing it. Something just wasn't right, end Mm. quote. So Paul Kotick, who's another free diver that was there working with the team, he said, quote, the rumors were flying thick and fast. There was a rumor that Audrey had discovered she was pregnant. The day of the dive on that morning, it was very stormy. So the countdown was originally stopped. Her mood just was very, very bizarre. She stood at the edge of the water. She just stared at the ocean. It was troubling to a lot of the people who were there. They just noticed a huge difference, right, in her. Mm. There was a lot going on that just didn't feel right. He said, quote, it was like a Greek tragedy coming to an end that everybody could see coming. Oh, my God. If she, yeah, yeah, if but if she was pregnant, she would be disqualified, right? I mean, what you can't Uh, do that. I don't know. I don't know the as far as the depth into the that role, like those yeah. roles. I'm not. I'm not sure. Huh. I, I mean, if if she, let's say she was pregnant and he was like you're still going to do this. I don't, you know, I don't care. Yeah. You know, you're still going to do this. I don't care about it. You need to break this record. I mean, I could totally see that. Mm. There was also a rumor that Audrey actually wanted to get divorced mm. after this attempt of the record. She was kind of had it, was was fed up, but there really wasn't a whole lot of confirming information that I found on that. So October 12th, 2002, this was the day that Audrey would try to break the world record. The weather wasn't very good, as I mentioned, so the start was actually a little delayed. As it cleared up, the countdown resumed. A big crowd gathered at the beach, and Audrey was then taken out to the dive site. As you can imagine, everybody's checking, double-checking equipment, safety apparatuses, ensuring everything kind of goes all as well as possible. So Bill Stromberg, who was one of the safety free divers, he said, quote, there were at least two times people were asking if the bottle was filled with air, and I could hear Pepin reply, get away from it, take care of that, do other things, leave it alone, I've already taken care of the bottle, it's filled, leave it, end quote. Now, the bottle that he was referring to was that tank that's attached to the inflatable bag, the, the lift bag that would bring Audrey back to the surface. So once she hit her depth, she would fill it, like we mentioned, the three steps, right? Yeah. So you hit the depth, grab the sled, fill the air, pull the pin, release, and you go up. So Pepin was saying that he took care of it, that there was air in it, and a lot weighed on that fact. If Audrey couldn't get back to the surface, the outcome would be deadly. Mm-hmm. There were plenty of safety divers on the surface, but the depths were actually another story. Like I mentioned, there were some people, critical people that were already missing from the team. Uh When Tanya broke her record, she had 16 safety divers. Audrey had two. 
there were only two divers watching an entire space of her goal of hitting 170 meters, over 500 feet. Due to the 130 safety meter diver not being there, Cedric DeRolis, the one who died the previous year, there was a huge gap. There was one diver who was at 80 meters, and then the next safety diver was at 172 meters. That's a huge gap. Yeah. Mm. But the safety diver, if he at the 172 meter would not be able to ascend, like if something were to happen, would not be able to ascend with Audrey because he would have to do those decompression stops. Right. He would have to stop. And like we mentioned, it would take for her three minutes down, he's in the water for three hours. Right. He could only go so far safely and would have to pause at certain depths on the way up because of this gap. Should something go wrong, they just wouldn't be able to, like there was nobody for him to hand her off to. This whole setup would never have been sanctioned by ADA, Mm. one of the associations. But with Pippin's IAFD, despite the dangers, he still pushed Audrey to continue. Mm. So with a kiss goodbye, she began her descent on the weighted sled that took her down. She actually did make it to 171 meters. She went to open the valve to fill her tank, inflate the lift bag. The tank was empty. There was no air in the cylinder. The safety diver who was at 172 meters who saw this saw that when she went to open up the valve, the lift bag did not inflate. So she went to her aid. He tried inflating the lift bag with his own tank, but it didn't rise fast enough. And due to insufficient inflation, it was a strong current at the time. And the riser rope wasn't vertical, meaning it the rope that they used to kind of know where up and down is. Where do I go? Because when you're that deep, you, you can't see the surface. Like you're, it's so deep, right? Had there been a safety diver at the 130 meter mark they would have helped audrey ascend filling her lifting bag so like the 172 safety diver would have gone into a place that was safe for him passed her off to somebody else who would have then been able to put more air in her lift bag but there was a gap there was no safety diver there the safety diver at 172 meters he found her drifting away from the line the lift bag came to the surface and there was no audrey he found audrey at 124 meters was able to bring her up at 90 meters but he had to stop for decompression he didn't have anybody to hand her off to she was just there now a dive that should have been no more than three minutes resulted in remaining underwater for almost nine minutes now remember audrey's holding her breath like it might have been a little different if she could have held her breath for longer than three minutes but it's crazy like who's gonna hold their breath for more than three minutes like eight (laughs) you know almost nine minutes underwater like i don't what's the record for that i don't even know alexa What's the longest breath hold underwater? From came to the surface. It was just the bag, no Audrey. Pippin put on a scuba gear, dove down to the, about the 90 meter mark where she was to bring her unconscious body to the surface. By the time she got to the surface, it was eight minutes and 38 seconds. Hmm. She did have a weak pulse. However, there were no medical doctors immediately available to treat her, which is also another part of the ADA certification. Like you have to have like a medical doctor there. The doctor who they thought was there was a dentist. So he's like, oh, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a dentist. And they have to have not just a doctor, but somebody who's specialized in like narcosis and nitrogen, yeah. like somebody who's specialized in uh, hyperbaric yeah. medicine. Hyperbaric medicine. There you go. So Pepin did attempt to resuscitate her in the water, like on the surface when they got to the surface. 
surface, but it was too late. To get her from the beach to the infirmary, they didn't even have a gurney. Like the medical people that were there, they didn't have a gurney. They put her on a beach chair and carried her to the infirmary. It was, by the time they made it to the infirmary, it was about 30 minutes later, and Audrey Mestri was pronounced dead. Uh-huh. An autopsy was conducted by Dr. Danid Moki Mendez and Dr. Anna Felit Mercedes the next day, October 13, 2002. The autopsy report indicates that blood and urine samples were examined, no alcohol or drugs were found. It notes that the lungs were found augmented or increased in size, which is normal for somebody who's a trained freediver because they're trained to hold their breath. So it's normal for them to have larger lungs to be able to hold the expanse, right? Uh-huh. The conclusions that were produced said the death of the French national Audrey Anne Marie Mestre Ferreras occurred because of asphyxia due to submersion, accidental death. Uh-huh. The lift bag also was inspected after the accident. It showed a secretion of wear that could have been a cause of some leaking. However, the amount of air that would have leaked would not have been sufficient enough to affect the performance of being able to ascend back to the surface. Mm -hmm. The compressed air bottle didn't show any signs of damage or leaking or anything. So it wasn't like it was a faulty tank. Should have had air in it. Pepin said, there was air in it. I've taken care of it. Go take care of something else. So obviously controversy ensued following Audrey's death because Pepin was so blatant to tell people that he took care of the tank and nobody else should touch it. Yeah. And their investigators, hounders, also looked for somebody to blame. And most of it was focused on Pepin. And among many of the people that blamed Pepin was Carlos Serra, Pepin's former business partner. He was convinced that Pepin Ferreras was directly responsible for Audrey's death. Pepin was, by Carlos's account, a quote-unquote possessive monster habituated to mental and physical abuse of his wife, increasingly and desperately envious of her as she started greater depths than he had, end mm. quote. And that's his business partner. Bam. Yeah. That's crazy. He, he summed that up pretty eloquently. Yes. Absolutely. Carlos' only uncertainty was whether or not Pippin intended to kill his wife. Was it just an oversight? Did he think he filled it? Yeah. Another theory that Carlos kind of had is that he did believe that Pippin didn't fill the air tank so he could be a hero and he could actually save her. So the focus would be on him. Mm-hmm. He could be the hero of the story. I completely see that one. Thank yeah. The thing is, everything he's worked for is gone so his ego all he has left is her to break the record Mm -hmm. and then he magically right yeah he's you know and the only thing he can do is make a dramatic rescue on film with everybody there to watch right and now he's the hero again and even think of that for audrey like if he was able to save her if this did if this was his pepin's plan if it if it did work out that way audrey would have been like you are my hero you know and and just feel completely like elevated him on just a whole new level yeah especially if they were if there was abuse mm-hmm. and she was thinking about leaving oh he saved my life now how am i going to leave him yeah right you know, yeah he does care he does love what it's a gaslighter yeah a little bit <laughs> audrey did not survive she was cremated her ashes were scattered at sea her parents were there on the boat and Pepin was the one that put her ashes out to sea In 2002, she was inducted posthumously into the Women's Divers Hall of Fame, and even in death, the lessons learned from her final dive, as well as her courage, dedication, and passion, will be an inspiration to all free divers and indeed to all those involved in testing the limits of human endurance. 
And that's the story of Audrey Mestri. Mm. Wow. Our deaf. I totally think that only it's plausible to think that he may have somehow either, I'm not saying maybe he constructed the whole situation or maybe mm-hmm. her safety was just not on the, the heightened list that of concerns, right. you know, beating the record was more important to him than actually getting her back to the surface. I mm-hmm. don't know, but I mean, at a minimum that IAFD organization, Pepin's association, the IAFD sued, sued, sued. Because the negligence alone on their part for safety protocol is just not there. Right. That's who's gonna who's gonna sue him? He can't sue himself. He's his his, parents should have. Yeah, you can. The Murdoch did. I'm just saying, Alec Murdoch did. You know what? Yes, like the state can Mm. sue, and now, well, I mean, prosecute, saying that. Well, Mm. somebody's, you know. Why are you looking at me like I'm just saying he did? He sued himself. He sued himself. (laughs) I know. He just couldn't represent himself. But actually, so Pepin was asked a year later after Audrey's death directly, who was responsible, Pepin, for filling the tanks? And he said the whole team was responsible to making sure the air tank was filled. That, he, I mean, th- now that might be true. It should right. be, right? It should be double checked, triple checked. It should be right. checked by multiple people that there would be air in there. The fact that he was shooing everybody away. Yeah. And he was the only one who filled it. So nobody is resp- nobody was held accountable for her death. No. no, nothing's that, ever happened. It's no. still listed as uh, accidental. accidental. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's why, Chatters, we say, uh, we'll tell you the story and let us know what you think. Yeah, seriously. I, <laughs> I think totally it's a little suspicious. I know who I'm putting my money on. He's guilty. He's totally guilty. Oh, my God. That's terrible. Isn't that horrible? What? Did Alec ever represent him? Huh? <laughs> Did Alec ever represent him? <laughs> Did Murdoch. Murdoch might have, should represent him. Seriously. So now, is there is there a documentary that I can watch on this? Because now yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, it's called No Limits. No Limits. Is it yeah. on Netflix? No, it's on YouTube. YouTube? Okay. It's an ESPN documentary. You can mm-hmm. also, there's a lot of research on like the ESPN website. There's actually another video that he originally had shown me about the story. It's called, the channel on YouTube is called Dive Talk. And they do a reaction video yeah. to the No Limits documentary. And they're two dive professionals as well. They're very knowledgeable for mm-hmm. anybody that's interested in kind. And they do a lot of underwater stuff. So, And the documentary, The No Limits, are they biased to him? Or are they kind of telling the story regardless of, the way it makes him look. I I think they tell just kind of tell the story because they do interview him kind of towards the end, which is that part that I just mentioned where, hey, who was responsible for filling the tank? And and Pupin said it was a team's responsibility. Hmm. I don't think they're really biased. If it's my wife or my husband doing that, I'm going to fucking check and make sure that that shit's filled. (laughs) Well, if I'm doing it, I'm going to check my own cylinder. Well, yeah, you can be able to check yourself. I would have checked my own cylinder. Yeah. But there's some things that from like a dive aspect that I don't understand. Understand. Like the cylinder, if you watch the documentary, they actually show the moment she opens the cylinder. Not it, to me, it doesn't look like one drop of air comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big no no in the dive. You never take your tank to zero, even to store. You always leave air because if you yeah. don't, then now you can get things in there in your tank that can harm uh. you. So if you let all the air out of your tank, you have to go get tested or not necessarily tested, but inspected and everything else. So you're telling me these tech divers to go to all these depths, Pepin, who's been doing this for all these years, why is a tank empty when that's a no no? Mm-hmm. Like that is something yeah. you're, you are taught in your first 
first ever right. open water certification, never take your tank to zero. Well, so, correct, correct so, me if I'm wrong too. Even so when the tank does go to zero, like you said, it has to get inspected. Right. Once it's been cleared, it's immediately filled. Yeah. Every time it's yeah. it, there are tanks visually inspected, the O-rings changed, all that good stuff. So that makes, that makes me think, do you think this was suicidal? Like, No, do I don't think, think so. You don't oh, think she purposely went there knowing that that was not going to make it up? No. I, that's actually like I'm, that, that's a good theory though like i've never heard that one from that aspect like maybe if there was abuse maybe she's just done with it you heard it here first chatters <laughs> <laughs> well watch watch a documentary because okay. the, the whole thing is filmed from her descent to her ascent really well okay. until she kind of floated away from the mechanism right she kind of started to flow away because there's a camera that was attached and you right. see her go down the whole time and start yep. to come up you see her open up the valve and no air come out for it not you see the the safety diver come over and start to fill the lift bag with some of his own air shout out to him too yeah like I, I, a lot of people probably won't understand but him giving her that air at that depth unless it was a safety bottle for that purpose yeah if that was his air kudos to him for trying yeah. to save her because at that depth he could very likely need that to get up so wow. but the decompression stops as long as it right. takes them to have to get up yeah so that put that that whole stunt, well, that whole thing, this organization that he put everybody's lives at risk, basically. Oh, absolutely. Everyone. I will tell you right now the mm. the the Ada and the CMAS. Mm. I don't I don't know, like I didn't see any other place where the IAFD was like certified or like acknowledged as an official association. So maybe right. it's disbanded by now because this was over 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. And a right. lot could have happened and, you know, wow. it could have been disbanded or whatever. So that's crazy. That's a crazy freaking yeah. story. Yeah. So. Skissy, how do you like it? Skissy. <laughs> She's smiling. <laughs> it's just it's just a state of fear. Skissy. You, you know what Skissy needs? What? A knife. It's like, look at my sweet smile. And I have yes. All right. Skussy will come back. You should stick her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Well, because we don't want to leave you hanging chatters, for more information on this case, please check out After That Crime Chat, only available on Patreon. And don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter to see what we have coming up next. Remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. when you become a chatter on our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, free merch, and check out some merch in the works. You might get some good bloopers out of this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and be sure to check out our next episode. Natalie's up next doing a fantastic story. What do you, can you tell us? Which book, can you sneak peek us at all? No. Sounds like a surprise. Oh, see, I was going with the surprise aspect. It's, it's a surprise. It's a surprise. <laughs> it's a surprise. <laughs> well, we'll all be surprised. Yes. I'll be surprised. You'll be surprised, chatters. Chris, if he listens, I'll be surprised. He'll be surprised. Yes. And Chris, thank you for being here yes. and doing this with us. Thanks for having me. I'm probably not getting invited back, but it's cool. Technically, Chris, you're our first chatter. You're yeah. technically the first chatter. So yeah. yeah, you hear that chatter? I was the OG. No, I'm just kidding. The OG chatter. It's dash. Yeah. You don't want to miss it either way, but we'll see you on the next crime chat. Yes. Bye. Bye. Wait. Bye.